0: In the Forgotten Realms, the city of Eltabar and Thay was built in the shape of a massive glyph that was used to trap the demon lord Eltab, which allowed him to be used as a power source by the Reb Wizards. Saz-Tam tried then to perform a ritual to permanently bind Eltab to his control, but he failed, and the city got trashed. Since Saz-Tam doesn't like bad press, this was passed off as a natural earthquake. But you know, that kinda works out in the long run for all the people that had earthquake insurance, but
1: let me tell you, not those... People with the uh, rambaging demon lord insurance. It kind of screwed them over, in fact. I believe Saz Ham sold probably a bunch of it so that he didn't have to pay it out. And then he caused this to happen, and they revoked everybody's earthquake insurance. It's a pyramid scheme, I'm telling you. He's like Cobra Commander. And now we present to you, Facco with Advantage.
0: Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing d a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the old neighborhood where we always love visiting and seeing what's changed. (laughs) Hi, I'm Ange, and I have been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became Gnome. And hey, a year ago, we started recording this. We
2: did. Well, not this episode. That would be a really long episode.
0: Yeah, that'd be a really, really long episode.
2: (laughs) Hi, I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games that we're running in the campaign journal... We'll be looking at urban campaigns and how those differ from more traditional campaigns. Then we'll do some recommendations of D&D related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign
0: journal. So, hey, I actually ran a D&D game recently. It was the kids game. Unfortunately, this was our first time since January (laughs) that we got to play, so we were all a little rusty, um, and we we picked up where we left off with them entering the lighthouse to find out what was causing ships to crash on the Sword Coast. Mm
1: -hmm. Now,
0: as I said, we were rusty. As a confession, I didn't really read the notes as much as I should have before the session. So I screwed up which room the big bad was actually in. (laughs) I quickly shifted things around so that it was pretty seamless for the players. I don't think they were any wiser. Um, It was just, I felt it was poor DMsmanship on my part.
2: (laughs) These things happen.
0: Yeah, they happen. There really wasn't too much to the session, but they all seemed to have fun. It was basically... They had, in the previous session, they had basically gotten up to the lighthouse after getting through um, negotiating with a banshee and beating off some harpies that were attacking them. Uh, So this was just exploring the lighthouse itself. So they found the guy inside that was causing the problems and his minions and then discovered his dead beating heart in the, uh, the light of the lighthouse, which was drawing ships to their death. And they dealt with all of that and found some treasure and, you know, it, it, was, it was fun. They had a good time, but it wasn't very meaty. <laughs> now, the next time we get to play, which is probably going to be mid-August, probably going to be the last time I'm going to be able to have this group together. Oh, They're all graduated from high school now. Mikey is off to school somewhere downstate. I believe Iquana is headed off to Massachusetts to school. Kevin and Adelaide are staying local, but at the same time, they've got a lot on their plate. So I don't (laughs) know that that group as a whole will get together again. Mm -hmm. So for the next session, I'm going to put together the dragon fight. (laughs) Now, the, the key is going to be trying to get the dragon fight into the game in a session where my players are easily distracted, and usually we get about two hours of actual play <laughs> in a four-hour session. So we'll see see how this goes. Now, on the playing front, only one of the campaigns that I'm in actually happened since the last episode. In our Undermountain campaign, the GM was running uh, one of the adventures from the Keys of the Golden Vault, and this was a ton of fun. I cannot tell you the name of the scenario because... I don't remember it, Um, but it was a ton of fun, and we had an amazing moment where our rogue got to inflict 126 points of damage in one attack on a night hag. (laughs) This is one of those moments that fate just sang and allowed the game to be awesome. He had been hanging on to some purple worm poison since we were way back in Skullport. The GM allowed to apply it before the attack, and then he just so happened to roll a natural 20. It was glorious. It's probably one of those things we will all remember for a very, very long time.
2: So many extra dice.
0: It was, I mean, it would have been a lot of fun in person, but it was still really cool. You know, I don't even know that we would have had enough dice between us at the table
2: for what he was rolling. Oh, goodness. Well, unfortunately, our Thursday game didn't go off in between uh, our last recording and now, but I did want to get caught up on the game that I'm running for my daughter and my daughter in law and their friends. When we last left them, they had started recruiting the Shade Kai to help them fight against an undead general working for Vecna that had attacked their homeland. They had a feast with the Shade Kai and they were discussing what was going on and the kind of help they were going to need. We determined that Shader Kai food for special occasions is like super spicy and rich <laughs> because the Shadowfell dulls their senses. And for special occasions, they bring out things that are really, really powerful. So all of the, the players were kind of overwhelmed because the Shader Kai are all kind of like dulled by living in the Shadowfell. During dinner, um, we had a conversation talking about the Raven Queen's castle and how that was nearby and how you know it's amazing that they live this close to a goddess's domain. And they just happened to also see that there was a key that gets into the Raven Queen's fortress that was on display in the uh, the Archives Hall. Overnight, while everyone else was sleeping, the centaur druid that has been traveling with them snuck off with the key. They found out eventually that it's because his wife had died and he couldn't find, you know, he was doing divinations and he couldn't find any evidence that she had been reincarnated like you know would happen with the druid circle and their beliefs so he wanted to know why she was stuck in the land of the dead in the morning the Shade kai are like you know what we do still want to ally with you but you're gonna to have to clean up your mess before we can trust you so they headed out to the fortress to track down the centaur on the way to the fortress they ran into an aleph and some shade minions from mcdm's flea mortals I like still using the minions with this group because it is still giving them that that whole thing where I can throw like, you know, 10 things at them and they don't do a lot to them. And if they hit them, they go down. But it feels like they're doing a lot because, you know, they started off this fight like, you know, two to one odds and all of that. Yeah. The Allop itself, it is essentially a wraith that whispers weird things that messes up your mind. The Allop, when it was whispering to the monk, the monk punch the paladin in the face during the fight. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that was the most damage anyone took was the monk hitting the paladin. <laughs> so, after that they managed to dispatch the uh, allop. They make it into the fortress and they find the centaurs incapacitated. What I hit them all with is because this is the fortress of memory, they all had to deal with their worst memories. Ooh. And the simple thing was it was just going to be give me a charisma save or you're incapacitated. But I made each of them tell me what their worst memories were. The funniest one was the person playing the ranger tried to make hers as innocuous as possible.
0: That's like such a such a thing that people would do back in the day. <laughs> and I mean, it's reassuring to know that people still do it today. Yes,
2: <laughs> this is only her like, what, fourth or fifth session of d and and she's still doing that. Or she's doing that just like somebody back then. Um, So like her memory that she told me was my most traumatic memory is I stepped on a flower one time. So when we got to the memory and I went to describe it, I told her how, you know, there was this garden planted on her family's estate to commemorate her brother that had died during a war and that the flower she stepped on was in the garden that commemorated her (laughs) her passing (laughs) off. And that her her mother was looking at her all horrified because she had stepped on this flower. (laughs) She was like, okay, fine, you got me. (laughs) The save was fairly easy because I didn't really want everyone to, you know, get entangled here. Basically, anybody that wasn't incapacitated could snap somebody else out of it. And they go to the centaur, they wake him up, and a psychopomp angel from the Kobold Press book shows up. I like this because weirdly enough, D&D doesn't really have like an angel of death or a I'm going to escort you to the afterlife kind of angel officially, which is kind of weird because that feels like a thing that you would have, but it seemed appropriate for this setting in the Raven Queen's domain. So the angel shows up and tells the centaur, you know, you're alive. You can't speak with your wife. Everybody in the party was like, yep, sorry, you wasted your time. Let's all go. And he goes, but if you were on the threshold of life and death, you could speak to your wife. So then the party had to decide whether they were going to dissuade him from basically what I determined is if he dropped to zero hit points, he would need at least three heartbeats in order to be able to have a discussion with his wife, which meant he was going to make three death saves. And after that, they could revive him. But. Like I told them, if you let him go for three, if he fails two of them, that third one, he could just die and you wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Or he could roll, you know, a one on one of these rolls. So it's up to you whether you want to risk it. And they decided they wanted to risk it and let him do it. So they were hovering over him, waiting for that third death save. And as it turned out, he only failed one of the three. So it wasn't too nerve wracking. And then on the third death save, right after he made it, they healed him and brought him back. So he finds out that his wife was going to be transformed into a um, basically a spirit guardian for these druid groves. And that's why she's not back from the afterlife yet, because she is basically transforming into this other type of creature. What was really funny is I was kind of expecting the party to kind of be like, oh, that's, um, you know, it's really sad that he was missing his wife that much. They laid into him about how (laughs) she had a purpose and he delayed her from her purpose and he should have just realized that he needed to get on with his life and dealt with it without doing something dangerous to uh, to slow up her progress for what she needed to do.
0: Damn.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It evoked emotions, just not the emotions that I was assuming would happen. (laughs) So they get back to the Archai, The Archai are perfectly okay with, you know, still allying with them now that they have undone the damage that the centaur that was traveling with them did. And now the monk, who was upset because the big uh, warrior Shade Archai was flirting with the paladin, starts flirting with the leader of the Shade Archai, who, before I had much of a chance to describe her at all, basically everyone in, in all of my players decided that she was a more hot Morticia Adams who was also an elf. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, they probably weren't wrong. No, I mean, that
2: seems reasonable for a Shadarkai. I mean... (laughs) So that was our session.
1: Welcome to the Dungeon Masters Workshop.
0: Moving on to our Dungeon Masters Workshop, when we picture a typical D&D campaign, it often involves a lot of travel, possibly with some wilderness exploration. But definitely not a story that takes place in one very specific geographic area. Now, that doesn't mean every single campaign needs to be played that way, and sometimes it can be quite rewarding to run a campaign set in a specific urban location, i.e. our city campaign. (laughs) So, Jared, how did the early editions of D&D address the idea of running an urban campaign, or did they just ignore it because it wasn't really in their thought process?
2: There may have been a little bit in the first edition DMG because that had a little bit of everything and some of which, you know, contradicted itself because it went on for so long. (laughs) But really, um, a lot of the focus of the game, there was a lot more of this idea that you were going to go out somewhere and explore a place. Settlements and cities were kind of the place you came back to rest between adventures. They weren't where adventures happened a lot. So there isn't really a lot, especially not at the early OD&D, basic, very beginning of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons that touches much on how to run a campaign in a city.
0: I know my official knowledge of early editions is quite limited. Now, what were some of the first official products that offered up an urban setting to use?
2: What was really surprising to me is I kind of thought this was the case but I you know I did some digging to make sure there weren't some products that I forgot in there um and obviously I'm not a super expert because I didn't start playing until you know like mid 80s so I didn't have everything but when I did my my digging it does really look like that Lankmar City of Adventure was really the first product that TSR put out for AD&D that was really focused on the idea that most of your adventures will be in a city and it's really interesting to me because Lankmar isn't isn't a property that they owned. It was licensed. Now, granted, they took a whole lot of inspiration from Lieber's work in D&D, but it is really interesting to me that, you know, this first urban campaign really seemed to be Lankmar, at least as far as official TSR things were.
0: Mm-hmm. Now... Waterdeep was included in the first Forgotten Realms box set. Yeah. That came out in... eighties eighty seven 87. 87?
2: Yep. I think Lankmar squeezed in just like a year or two before that. Okay. It wasn't too long after the base Forgotten Realms book came out. The very first supplement for Forgotten Realms was Waterdeep in the North.
0: I didn't play in a lot of Forgotten Realms in the 80s. I think it was mostly generic dnd or greyhawk <laughs> or whatever but even i had heard about Waterdeep mm-hmm. before i played in the setting
2: just to make sure no one gets upset at us i'm not saying greyhawk didn't exist before all of this stuff i'm saying if you look back in the original greyhawk campaign setting book what they said about greyhawk was here's the person that rules it this is the population this is the kind of resources that are available, and then a couple paragraphs there it, there was nothing about adventuring in Greyhawk. There was details that Greyhawk exists, and this is some stuff that is there now what
0: about some unofficial products with city settings?
2: What's really interesting is in fairly soon after d and d came out so back in the seventies, judges Guild, who is like a big company that not it's not a big company it was a company that put out. They are a big company in terms of putting out uh, third party D&D stuff very early on in the 70s, back when people didn't seem quite as worried about litigation, about that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> they weren't yet known as they sue regularly.
2: Yeah. And also, if you want to you know, get a deeper context for all of this, I definitely recommend reading Designers and Dragons because they go into all of this stuff in detail. Those are great books. But basically, Judges Guild had put out adventures even before TSR had put them out. like the concept of publishing an adventure was kind of alien to TSR. And they were like, well, what if we just design an adventure and publish it? So also, they put out the city-state of the Invincible Overlord, which it is certainly a city product. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that it told you how to run a campaign in a city, but this thing is so ambitious because it literally showed you neighborhoods and every single building on a city block and told you who lived there and what kind of business it was or whose residence wow. it was like, this thing was super detailed. Like you could follow these city streets all through the city and they detailed like every one of those locations that was along that city street. <laughs> um, I think basically because of TSR being that kind of litigious, We didn't see a lot of third party city locations really until the third edition era when, you know, the OGL and the uh, SRD came out so that people were a little freer to publish things under that. One definitely big, notable thing that happened then.
0: (laughs) Big. You could murder somebody with that book.
2: Yes. I have the fifth edition version and it is still a murder weapon. Um <laughs> but it is uh Malhavoc presses Tolus which Monte Cook Games recently re-released for Cypher System and D&D 5e. Tolus is a lot like City State of the Invincible Overlord in that it tells you a lot of individual locations all over in the city. But unlike the City State of the Invincible Overlord, there are sidebars kind of saying this is the type of adventure you might have here or you know this person is hiding this secret. So it wasn't quite as much a census of the entire city (laughs) as it was kind of a lot of locations, but also some hooks to do something with those locations.
0: It's almost like 20 plus years (laughs) taught people what GMs actually need to run their games.
2: (laughs) Yeah, maybe you need more than, you know, yeah, sometimes it's hard to think of a name, but sometimes you need more than just a name. (laughs) It's like, oh, Mervyn lives at this place. <laughs> Who's Mervyn? I don't know, but that's who lives here, and it's canon.
0: <laughs> I, I you, you mentioned that it was like the Judges Guild was the first to publish individual adventures. Because mm-hmm. TSR didn't really think that was a thing. Yeah. And that's actually something that is covered in Designers and Dragons. When Gygax and crew at TSR put out Dungeons and Dragons, they were like, why on earth would we create adventures? <laughs> All Everything our players need is right there in these books. They can make up whatever they want. Not realizing that some people might need a little bit of help.
2: And what's really funny is even the first thing that they put out after, you know, Judges Guild did this and they're like, oh, this maybe is a thing we should be doing. They put out B1 in search of adventure and B1 in search of adventure is, you know, a bunch of caverns and them saying in this corridor, you could put this or you could put this or you could put this. Like, even that wasn't really an adventure. It wasn't even a dungeon. It was like, here is the shape of a dungeon and some suggestions on what you might want to <laughs> stock it with.
0: <laughs> Let's advance through through history to the present. What are some <laughs> of the urban settings that have featured and still feature extensively in D&D?
2: First off, I am definitely going to claim Lankmar for D&D, at least for part of its history, because they not only put out that first edition... Lankmar uh, campaign source book but second edition they put out another version of it and they also put out a whole bunch of adventures in second edition it was almost as well supported as some of the the settings that they actually owned so that was really interesting how much how invested they were in Lankmar up until probably the middle of second edition when it just kind of drifted away from them
0: I think all of D&D kind of drifted away from them (laughs) in the middle of second edition but that's that's another straight read designers and dragons i promise yes. you it's a good read
2: <laughs> greyhawk was definitely the first major city that had a name that had some weight to it in D products and even when it wasn't so much telling you you should adventure here greyhawk was that i mean they very specifically call it the free city of greyhawk it it was in the center of the continent it wasn't aligned with any of the other countries so this is you know this is a trade hub where everybody goes and this is a very important place because of that central location and the whole setting is named after Greyhawk so obviously Greyhawk definitely a big city didn't really get detailed until later on second edition did a lot to detail it though because there was a whole box set just for Greyhawk and it was a really nice box set they had like these uh Cardboard cards that had different adventures that would take place in different locations in it, on top of like the books that just detailed the city and everything. While there were settings before it, Waterdeep in the Forgotten Realms is kind of the big gun for most of D and D's history. Waterdeep has had a source book of some sort in just about every edition except fourth edition didn't. And I will let people decide whether they think of uh, Dragon Heist as a, as a source book for Waterdeep, but there is that whole and Sheridan of Waterdeep that is part of the adventure that does give you this overview of the city.
0: I absolutely consider Dragon Heist a Waterdeep sourcebook. book. There's a lot in there that gives you the feel of what Waterdeep is.
2: And while there's a ton of cities in the Forgotten Realms, I think it's worth noting Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter because... There's a lot of people that may not even know what, what Waterdeep is that will know Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter because both of those were featured in some pretty big video games that came out.
0: It's funny because I have always known that Waterdeep is the biggest city in Faerun. Waterdeep is probably the biggest city in most fantasy settings. Yet, for some reason, they've completely shied away from using it for any of the video games, mm-hmm. Baldur's Gate is really just a large town, isn't it? I mean, it's not really a full city.
2: It is a city, but here's what's weird: in Fourth Edition, because of that name recognition, they went through this whole thing where they were saying that Waterdeep lost a bunch of people during the Spell Plague, and Baldur's Gate had all these refugees that came up from Calimshan when there was you know wars down there. So now, like in Fourth Edition, all of a sudden, Baldur's Gate is actually bigger than Waterdeep because it probably has better name recognition. <laughs> I mean that was basically, the, you know, the logic behind it. But by the time we get back to 5th edition, Waterdeep is back to having like, you know, in the summertime has over a million people in it. You know, Baldur's Gate is back to it is a big city, but it is not not a million people in the summertime. It is a trade port, so it does um it does end up with a lot of, you know, population that way.
0: And then there's good old Neverwinter.
2: And Neverwinter, of course, got featured in the D&D movie so if you want to see what Neverwinter is like go watch the D&D movie <laughs> <laughs> also go watch it because I want a sequel and it did okay in the box office but not automatic sequel okay so you know go watch it on streaming and then maybe we'll get one
0: I believe one of the ex- I, I I saw something recently that said one of the execs at Paramount said that a sequel for the D&D movie is not off of the table. They just need to figure out how to do it a little cheaper.
2: Yeah, they invested a ton of money in this one.
0: Yeah, and, and honestly, that's kind of the message that a lot of filmmakers need to take to heart. Yeah. Because they're making these movies that are not, even if they're doing decently at the box office, they're not making their, their investment back. So we've got to figure out how to tone down the cost of how to make these movies. But let's get back to cities.
2: Sigil, I believe, is the proper pronunciation. I'm probably going to have somebody jump on me because I'm trying to remember which one is the right pronunciation, because it is a hotly contested point of how the city is actually pronounced. But... i always
0: pronounced it sigil, but <laughs> I also didn't play it quite that in depth.
2: <laughs> well, and I believe the, the point was, for one thing, it got pronounced in the Planescape Torment video game. Because it is also another city that happened to get video game support. Because Planescape Torment happens largely all through different parts of the city there. But it's also a big deal because when Planescape came out, this was a planar hub where, like, everybody could meet. This was sort of the fantasy version of Moss Isley. Like, you can go into a (laughs) bar in Sigil and there is... Uh, there might be a pit fiend and a solar and you know a genie and because everybody wants to preserve the peace and they don't want the lady of pain to show up then they'll behave themselves at least when someone's looking <laughs> <laughs> so that became a very big deal as far as cities in D. then when we get to third edition we have sharn in eberron sharn the city of towers i you know what i'm going to let you explain sharn and storm (laughs) storm reach
0: uh it's sharn is one of it uses kind of the unique elements of eberron i liken it to a lot of people say it's manhattan in (laughs) in a fantasy game because literally they built up instead of out yeah in sharn that's because it is a nexus with the plane of air and magic allows things to build up without a pesky thing like gravity or physics (laughs) getting in the way. Waterdeep was always super cool and I have actually run a campaign set in Waterdeep, but Sharn was the first D&D city that made me go, oh I could see how a campaign that stays in the city could actually function. Yeah, Because with the way Sharn is set up, you have everything from the creepy lower depths of the cogs <laughs> to the upper echelons of the city floating in the clouds on flying cities. It is a super awesome location that I love <laughs> revisiting any chance I get.
2: And I think Stormreach is worth mentioning just because, you know, pirates. But also <laughs> that is where they chose to uh, set D&D online when it first came out, too. Mm-hmm. And that is on the uh, continent of, um... oh, my gosh, my brain just broke. <laughs> Zendrick. Yes, it's on Zendrick. The bad thing about this is that I should not forget that because Zendrick is the continent where all the giant societies were at. And I am a huge fan of giants. So <laughs> that was terrible of me to uh choke on that one.
0: I will say there are other cities in Sharn that are worth exploring if you don't want to go big city. You want to go sort of mid sized city because there's uh, Rote, which is the capital city of nation whose name i'm forgetting basically each of the capital nations has a decently sized city and then there's even Thronehold, which was the seat of the the rulers of the whole continent before it got broken up during the hundred years war
2: i'm just gonna throw tolos out there again because it is still in print you know bonnie cook games put it back out again so if you want a fifth edition version of that for dnd it is still out there and it exists and it's been updated for this edition. I also wanted to throw out Absalom from Pathfinder's Galarian setting in part because Absalom played a very important role in how they were kind of marketing Pathfinder when it first came out because Absalom is, again, like Greyhawk, it is like the center of the continent, but it is also where the Pathfinder Society is located, and that is how they they built their whole Pathfinder Society organized play. It's like... This is a centralized location where people from all these different countries and different factions and different interests come. But if you're all members of the Pathfinder Society, you get orders from Absalom to go into different places to look for these ancient relics and things like that.
0: It's a good launching pad. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to why would a GM want to run an urban campaign?
2: I would say you're never at a loss for knowing that there are NPCs that fit a particular role in an urban campaign. Unless you come up with, you know, needing a hermit druid or a legendary hunter, you're covered. <laughs> and even then, usually, even if you have a big city, it's easy enough to have, you know, you know, wilderness nearby that big city. So you're still not that far removed from being able to have an NPC that fills those roles. Like Waterdeep, for example, has our deep forest right nearby. So, hey, do we need <laughs> a druid? Let's just, you know, travel down the coast for a couple hours. The other thing that is neat is that cities are a home base and you can adventure and be right there in your home base. Like you can turn around and do a thing and then be home again. There's no travel in between your adventure site and back to the home base. And if you're really focused on that idea that you want to do the adventure and then you want to get back home, you know, you're right there. Because cities are a destination, adventure comes to adventurers. Even, you know, when your adventurers don't know where they want to go, someone can show up in the city that is causing a problem and now they have to deal with it. You know, someone from outside the city causes some sort of intrigue. And also, cities have this wonderful built in ability to have like graveyards and sewers, sometimes ruins that they're built on top of, just like real world cities often are built on top of older cities. So you have dungeons that are literally below their feet.
0: <laughs>
2: what are some reasons you would run an urban campaign?
0: I. Definitely love the idea of having a cast of recurring NPCs. Mm -hmm. Instead of having to make up a group of NPCs for every new location that your players visit, you've got a set of NPCs that can become regular players in your game, which, depending upon what type of GM you are, might really scratch your itch to get some role-playing in without having to constantly recreate. And I'm not saying a GM NPC here. I'm saying a cast of characters that are meaningful to the adventure that's happening. It is a strong setting for really leaning into intrigue between factions, mm. because you can have, you know, are your characters associated with the city watch? Are they associated with a thieves' guild? Are they in service to some nobility in the city? Are they just some people defending their neighborhood, a la the defenders? Who <laughs> are your characters? And what factions are they associated with the city? It can give you some very specific location scenes and set pieces that, you know, if you're using a pre created city are already set up for you. It gives you detail. It allows you to detail and world build and actually get it to come into play Mm -hmm. rather than doing world building for each location that your players are going to travel to. And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than doing some world building for this town. You expect your players to visit and they decide, "Nah, we'll just keep we'll just keep traveling. We don't need to stop." <laughs> but I have story over there for you. Look, story. <laughs> I also think it is a way to make better use of your PCs' backstories and history, especially if when you set up the campaign, they're encouraged to make characters that are affiliated and associated with the city rather than strangers that have just come in. Mm -hmm. You know, you can build up a whole repertoire of people they know and are associated with. I ran Dragon Heist. We had Walker, who was a Tabaxi rogue. His mentor ended up becoming a fairly prominent NPC that they ended up working with a couple of times. We had Tess, who was a warlock who was part of the nobility but kind of in hiding um, because there was scandal in her family and we had a couple of NPCs that were associated with that scandal that would just I mean she was she was essentially a teenager with anger issues (laughs) and a demonic blade that she could summon out of nothing so (laughs) it wasn't that hard to make her angry
2: wait an angsty teenager that could summon a blade out of nothing I have heard this before
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no teleporting, though. No teleporting, though. I know not what you speak up to. So if you are going to do a campaign that's set in a city, how do you handle the setup and character creation of that game?
2: If you aren't going to incorporate the PCs leaving the city, that's probably something that is very important to communicate. And if travel and overland journey or sea travel or whatever isn't going to be important, It's probably going to be good for the PCs to know they don't need to spend feats or skills or spells based on wilderness options like that. I personally like to make sure that the PCs are tied to not just the city, but to a particular section of the city. So I like to find locations that they're tied to, places that they go to often. I like them to have contacts so that there are people that can be the face of different neighborhoods in the city.
0: Yeah, I think you have to be very upfront with your players that it is going to be an urban campaign and push back on any character concept that is going to struggle to thrive in that setting. Mm -hmm. Now, this is to not say that you can't make a druid or a ranger or a barbarian who works in the city. Mm -hmm. You just need to make sure the player understands what they're getting into and tailor that character to that environment. Yeah, It's... Too often, players, you know, it, it, I still see this happen today, where players make their characters in a vacuum and bring them to the table without any idea of what the GM is planning, and therefore you end up with characters who are hamstrung by not being as useful as they would mm-hmm. because their skills and abilities that they focused on are not going to be in use. Yeah. Um. You know, they, they, an example of the opposite of A city campaign is the player that made a very talky social bard when all we were going to be doing was a dungeon crawl. Mm -hmm. You made a very social character with nobody to socialize with. It would be the same as making a druid that's going to be in a city campaign that hates being in the city and has no nature to nature with.
2: And sometimes you can work with concepts in a campaign but it's not going to be the same like your druid that hangs out in the high forest is not going to be the same as let's say you you make a druid that lives in Waterdeep that tends all the gardens in the city of the dead and part of why they tend the gardens in the city of the dead is to help keep you know undead from coming through you know coming back out of there that is a viable druid but it is definitely a different druid than the druid that goes and wanders around the forest all the time
0: i think you also can Work with the players on weaving their characters into the setting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I mentioned on the the previous question, you know, it gives you a chance to talk. You know, make better use of the characters' backgrounds and history. And you can, when setting up the campaign, talk with your players about the factions that are going to be in that city. Mm-hmm. Do they want to be associated with a faction? Do they want to have a rivalry with a faction? In my Dragon Heist game. I I still go on about this. They're expected. (laughs) It's called Dragon Heist, but the way the adventure is written, it expects them to work with the city watch. My players made criminals, okay? Uh, So there was definitely an aversion to working with the watch with Mm -hmm. that group. I think you also want to be very clear on the consequences for violence and spells within city limits if you don't want your players to be murder hobos. Yeah. They need to understand that they just can't murder everyone that annoys them <laughs> and setting off a fireball in the city limits is probably going to get some eyeballs raised.
2: Oh, yeah. And that actually is going to be something that also informs your campaign, because, for example, in Waterdeep, you know, if you kill somebody out in the street, that's going to be a problem. Luskin is a pirate port. Mm-hmm. Eh. <laughs> like, maybe they don't want a full-fledged riot, but if some guy gets shivved in an alley, nah.
0: Meh. These things happen. It happens. <laughs> and I mean, even in even in Waterdeep, the City Watch will look the other way depending upon where you are or what's going on. And- if
2: you're in Dock Ward, that's a whole other thing than if you're, you know, in the middle of Castle Ward and you cut somebody's throat.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So what type of challenges can you put in front of your PCs that are unique to urban campaigns?
2: Sometimes when PCs go out into a setting and they're in smaller locations like towns and villages there is a tendency for them to kind of become the law because they are heroes
0: i am the law
2: yeah and the locals will be like well you're an adventurer solve this problem for us there's nothing that's really that weird if you know someone is causing problem in the city or not city in a you know in a smaller settlement and they cut their head off in the middle of the town or let's say you burn down an inn while you're fighting a monster. Hey, it's a small town, you know, give him a bag of gold, let them retire somewhere, <laughs> you know, these are things that are much different in smaller towns than in a city, because in a city, you are going to have to deal with law enforcement. Um, if they are upright law enforcement, which is super rare, you know, maybe they, they'll stop you from doing certain things. But if nothing else, you may have to have some of your adventuring gains set aside for bribes so that you're getting out of trouble
0: not to mention there there can also be people who will stand up to your characters Mm -hmm. in a city that can actually take them on where you might not have that in a small podunk town
2: yeah that is another thing and it's not something that has been spelled out as literally in fifth edition but in third edition it specifically would tell you if you have a population of this size, you will have this many NPCs that are at least tenth level or fifteenth level or whatever. And that does. That has that you know, if you start burning down inns in Waterdeep, you're going to have, you know, the black staff show up and this is an archmage that can wreck your day and possibly animate some giant statues to step on you.
0: Yeah, you, you don't <laughs> want to catch the attention of the Lords of Waterdeep.
2: No. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, you might even have to, like, join a certain guild for a certain professions. Thieves' guilds are, or assassins' guilds are perfect examples of that. Like, you know, even if you're doing this thing illegally, if this, you know, makes it through the underworld and somebody finds out that you're stealing from people and not an official member of the guild, you could be in lots of trouble. And that's, like, a recurring thing in, like, the Fafford and Mauser books, as they're always at odds with the Thieves' guild. And that is a unique challenge that you're going to run into in a city.
0: Yeah. Like we mentioned earlier, there's there's no shortage of dungeon like places to explore mm-hmm. in a city. You can have your crypts and your sewers and all sorts of creepy stuff. In my Dragon Heist campaign, they had a very early experience with some oozes that could I don't ublex ublex Were they Ublex? Oh yeah, yeah. Um they basically like touch you and steal your memories and mm-hmm. mimic you and they're terrifying. Um so every time my players were in the sewers of Waterdeep for whatever reason, they were terrified cuz <laughs> those things might be around the corner. By the time the last encounter I threw in front of them with one of those, they could have easily taken it based on CR, but they mm-hmm. ran. They ran <laughs> cuz they were afraid. A challenge you can put in front of your players are the social intrigue encounters. Mm -hmm. There are uh, a truly large city will have a lot of different factions, all vying for power, all working towards their own goals, and your PCs can totally get caught up in the middle of that. In the Indus campaign, the City of Cows campaign, I've been playing with uh, my buddy Tristan running. It was definitely, we were caught between the remnants of the old thieves guild, some nobles vying for power, um, some cultists wanting to gain their own things. And it was like, we had no idea what was going on. We just knew we kept running into these people that were doing bad things and we were trying to stop them. And it took a while before we started seeing what was actually happening under the, you know, mm-hmm. in the shadows with all these things going on. And that's something I don't think you can really do well outside of a city campaign
2: yeah i i ran uh, one campaign in uh, Zobek in the the uh, midgard setting and the pcs this was interesting because you know we talk about starting some campaigns with having a patron already which is what we did in our campaign that we're doing but like the way they started this in zobeck they were looking for a patron like they didn't want to keep taking the adventuring job board things that were saying hey clear the rats out of my basement (laughs) they wanted to find a patron that was going to give them jobs that were you know that were going to pay well and that is another thing like in a city you have you know like you want to get the attention of the movers and shakers that will hire you for those important jobs Mm -hmm. which gives you more of a reason to go to parties or to go to, you know, formal functions and things of that nature in order to get people's attention as well.
0: Can I share a secret of my dragon heist campaign that really never came to fruition because we (laughs) kind of ended before I got there?
2: Why, yes. (laughs) Initially,
0: I started it. The PCs were, were hired by a patron to be an adventuring party serving under her. What they didn't know is that she was one of several nobles that were competing to see who could have the most uh, successful and interesting adventuring party working for them. And they would all gather and watch things through scrying and other things. And there were hints of it in the campaign, but I never got to the point where they realized that that was what was going on.
2: I love that, too, because that is a very Forgotten Realms thing. Mm. I mean, that having people that use adventurers to advance their social standing i mean especially like um that was something that uh ed's campaign did a lot with Cormer, you know where you would have different noble families where it was like these are my retainers that are doing these things for me
0: now don't get me wrong lady xylena was fun fantastic and neutral good she was not evil <laughs> she was not doing this to be manipulative she was trying to to do some good things but she wasn't above playing the game <laughs> so what do you do for those moments when your campaign needs to transition beyond the city or when your characters have outgrown the city
2: i think you need to be very clear about how much of a sideline the trip is um if you're going to have an adventure that takes place outside the city after you've been in the city for a while Like, are you leaving the city for an adventure? Are you leaving it for a story arc that might take a few adventures to resolve? Or are you looking to change the style of campaign that you're playing? That Zobek campaign that I mentioned, for example, there was a point when they went to leave the city and they were leaving the city because they were in trouble and they could not stay in the city any longer. (laughs) (laughs) So it was obvious that the campaign was going to change because they had burned their bridges very badly in (laughs) Zobek. And you can always change your mind about, you know, those things like you can be pretty sure when you sit down and have your session zero that this is going to be a city campaign and you may play for a year and decide, you know what, I'm having fun in the city, but I think I want to do something different. And you can always revisit those things, but keep that line of communication open so that you're not just dragging someone away from something that they expected and that they built everything for.
0: Yeah, I would definitely treat it. it, if you know, I can see this happening with changing tiers of play. Mm-hmm. You've had the characters in the city since third level. They're about to hit tenth level. They're going to be entering a new tier of play. You know, are you going to be able to keep the challenges to the same level? Is the story still contained within the city, or are they going to have to move beyond to like follow up on those epic storylines that you've been seeding along the way? I will say it is. Fun to do little side trips out of the city Mm -hmm. in my dragon heist campaign. I threw kind of a side adventure. That's not in that adventure path at the players where they had to go to Artie forest and find these particular flowers that only bloom on certain nights in a certain time, basically magical bullshit. (laughs) And, uh, I had a lot of fun pointing out to the characters how absolutely out of their element they were (laughs) in the forest, because they were definitely all city kids (laughs) who did not know what to do when they got nature on them. (laughs) That was a lot of fun.
2: That's when you also, you surprise them eventually, because there's like a group of elves that have just been making sure they don't die, that also they never noticed the whole time, (laughs) just been following (laughs) What's really funny about that is when you talk about the different tiers of play and moving from like an urban you know campaign to something else, speaking of Fafford and Mauser actually being like a big influence on d and d if you look at like the first two thirds of the books, they adventure in Lankmar for a lot of those, then kind of in the middle books, they will get into trouble in Lankmar and go somewhere else and visit other parts of the setting, but then they always come back to Lankmar because they love the city so much and everything and then. When they have followers and a bunch of people, they get invited to, like, come and protect this island, and they pick up all their roots and all their followers, and they go to that island. And now they're basically, you know, like, head honchos working with the people on that island to protect it. And it is almost <laughs> like the story arc of D&D characters, except it's actually before D&D. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Like I said, I think there are times where you can start realizing your your players, especially if you have any magic users in your party, they're getting some big, powerful spells. You're going to want to give them opportunities mm-hmm. to use those big, powerful spells, and you maybe don't want that in a nice residential neighborhood in Waterdeep.
2: <laughs> what was interesting to me, too, I mean, that's actually a good example of if you wanted to still have an urban campaign, but change things from you know, hanging out in Waterdeep, you could always have people relocate to to yeah. uh, Sigil and then start having all these planar adventures now.
0: Yeah, it's a good way to keep that urban feel. And you have characters who are comfortable in the city. So let's just give them a different city. <laughs>
2: now it just happens to be that, you know, there's a chain devil working as a bartender instead of a retired adventurer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um. So I wanted to, before we completely wrap this up, I wanted to throw out how you feel about our current campaign on Thursdays because it is not entirely an urban campaign, but Akalon is definitely a home-based city. It is. And I've built a lot of the NPCs and everything to be with a lot of this in mind.
0: I was thinking about that as, as we were putting together the show notes for this episode. And I don't think any of our characters are based... Like I don't think our origins are based out of the city, Hmm. so our ties come to it as kind of strangers who found our way here and then got hired by the dragon to basically be her agents. Mm -hmm. On one hand, it's not exactly a city campaign, but on the other hand, it very much is. Mm -hmm. Um, I do like the fact that we have a recurring cast of NPCs.
2: And that's what I like about having it as your home base.
0: I, I I know in our most recent adventure, uh, when we had to get to the island, mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to the horologist, mm-hmm. and I think you, you had kind of a look of surprise on your face, <laughs> not remembering that I had experience with that character, and like, I needed a boat before, he gave me a boat, I'm going to go to him and see if he's got another boat.
2: We got a smuggler contact, we've done jobs for him before, let's just go get a smuggling yeah,
0: let's boat. let's let's go, you, you need a thing, you go to a friend. <laughs>
2: Uh also I I love your um your ale house drake that comes to visit yes. you. Yes.
0: <laughs> the sausage with wings.
2: <laughs> that is fun because you can like, you know, he basically runs on dropping rumors everywhere. And that is another thing that's really good. Rumors work really well in city campaigns.
0: Very much so.
2: you have anything else to say about cities here?
0: I don't think so. What I will say is if you're not certain if you want to run A campaign in a city, try a story arc in a city. Mm -hmm. You know, have your players, if you're in Eberron, have them go to Sharn and have to deal with something that's going to take a couple of sessions. Have them go to Waterdeep and have something that needs to take a couple of sessions. It'll give you a little bit of that flavor without forcing you to commit to it wholeheartedly.
2: Yeah, definitely. I will say there may be other things on the horizon. But for right now, if you wanted to go out and look at the Streets of Avalon and that product, it does something that the original Lankmar book did, which is it focuses on urban adventuring by building out a neighborhood. And I really like that concept of urban adventuring because you can know that there are all these things in the wider city, but it is also neat knowing like these handful of people that are just part of your neighborhood and what's available in your neighborhood and who to avoid in your neighborhood. And that is really the approach that the uh, streets of Avalon it's obviously it is, it is uh, when Brett did this, this is obviously very inspired by Lankmar, but I really like that approach of um, kind of building from the neighborhood up in that book and, you know, keep your eyes peeled because there may be something coming out someday.
0: You know, I am, I am very glad you remembered Mention the streets of Avalon because I would have felt very bad if I had failed to mention streets of Avalon in this episode.
2: I ran an entire campaign there with uh two of the people that are in our current uh game. We very much built up the um you know that specific part of the city, you know, their neighborhood, and we had you know cults involved that were trying to corrupt things, we had corrupt police officers. We had uh, different guild factions involved there. We had parts, uh, you know, like buildings that were in disrepair that collapsed into the sewers, so they ended up finding these ancient vaults that were underneath there. There is like so many things you can do in a city campaign, and it was very easy to work that into that uh, Streets of Avalon game.
0: It's, It's a very good setting for running a city campaign in 5e with a very particular kind of Hopeless feel to it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: no time for rest, you two. Get on your downtime research.
2: All right. Let's get into our downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to DD that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your DD experience.
0: Now, what I'm going to share isn't exactly a product, but it's a crafting experience. Um with playing VTTs, I've come to love being able to have custom tokens for my game. But that's not something you can easily do for an in-person game. And while I could go back to what we used to do where we would just say, "Yeah, these 10 red ninjas are totally <laughs> the guys you're fighting in this one. It doesn't matter what they are. Here, look at this picture, that's what they are. Just ignore the red ninja minis on the board." <laughs> but what I found is you can create tokens, using a color printer, a metal washer, a glue stick, and to make it really pop, a clear epoxy sticker. I've got a link to a tutorial that outlines a similar process. It just doesn't include the epoxy, the clear epoxy stickers. Um, But this is something I have been doing for some of my in-person games that I really enjoy because it lets you have a, a token with a little bit of weight to it Mm-hmm. for that in-person adventure that you're doing probably a little cost prohibitive to do it for everything but when you don't have a perfect mini it can help
2: It's also probably less cost prohibitive than it was back when i was running pathfinder and i would go and buy every single miniature and if i needed like 10 orcs for an encounter i would go to like miniature market and buy 10 orcs for that encounter because i wanted to have the exact right miniature. yes jared it is less <laughs> cost prohibitive than that all right, what I have this time around since we were talking about cities, I wanted to shout out the Campaign Builder Cities and Towns Map Folio. Um this was a companion product to the uh Cities and Towns book that Kobold Press put out and it is a set of 12 different maps and they range from like normal neighborhoods to graveyards to like a city block to kind of a more like um you know a more uh warmer climate you know type city um that has more open buildings and things like that. If you've ever seen what um Paizo's battle maps look like, they're similar to those, but they're actually thicker and they're they feel like more sturdy than those do and I really like them and there's a really good variety of different settings, also sewers because you have to have sewers. you always end up in sewers, yeah you gotta have sewers um if you do pick up the v t t version of cities and towns from Kobold press. They do have all of these maps in that bundle too. And all of those maps are set up with, you know, like the lighting. So you'll see all the shadows and everything, and light gets cast the right way on all of them. So I definitely recommend those if you're going to be running a city campaign.
0: So we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. And we want to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, consider checking out
2: bonus experience. Monica and her friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer.
0: We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.